This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This week, we're going to be focusing on heavy industry, that is to say, oil and gas, even agriculture, telecom. And we're going to be talking about the uses of drones for monitoring equipment. Our guest this week is none other than Nick Pilkington, who is the CTO and founder of Drone Deploy. Drone Deploy is based in the Bay Area. They've raised nearly $100 million over the last seven years to apply drones to a variety of applications across sectors, one of them being the monitoring of equipment, equipment upkeep. As it turns out, it's awful expensive to turn machinery off to make sure the parts aren't rusting or parts aren't broken, and drones and artificial intelligence, computer vision specifically, can help us with that job. Nick goes into great detail as to what the process looks like before drones and AI and sort of what drones and AI can do across kind of a a strata of application categories, as well as a little bit of a vision as to where this technology is headed. We've covered drones in the past. We had Nerala on back in the day. Some of you who are longtime listeners will remember we had one of the AI leaders at AT AT&T who talked about a similar technology back then. Obviously, the tech has advanced. I think Nick does a great job of highlighting what it can do. If you're interested in AI applications in heavy industry or any other sector, be sure to download our free guide online called Three Ways to Find AI Trends in Any Sector. You can find that at emerj.com slash T3. That's T is in trends and then the number three, emerj.com slash T3. Grab that free PDF and check it out. That should be a useful supplement to this episode. Without further ado, this is our Tuesday use case episode with Nick Pilkington of Drone Deploy here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Nicholas, we're going to be talking about infrastructure inspection. It's been a while since we've actually talked about this theme on the show. I think we had Nerala on back in the day, maybe AT&T touching on it briefly. You folks do work in a number of sectors. I know oil and gas and energy is a really big one. Can you talk to us about what infrastructure inspection is in that sector and also how it's done today, kind of the pre-AI picture? Absolutely, Dan. I think within energy, there are a ton of different verticals. And if you think of these different verticals, there's lots of different infrastructure in each of them. If we take an example from oil and gas, you can imagine something like a flare stack that needs to be inspected. And there are a number of different reasons why it might need to be inspected for erosion, for corrosion, for any type of damage or any sort of maintenance inspection. The way that's currently done is you have to first shut down that facility to do it safely. Once it's been shut down, you start to erect scaffolding to actually give you access to the assets. And that costs a bunch of money, typically hundreds of thousands of dollars, and can take about six weeks. After that, you're actually in a position to put people on the asset to actually do a manual visual inspection. Got it. So currently, we're talking about cutting the thing off. And, and normally speaking, you know, for this particular unit, first and foremost, is there some context on how many of these things there are? I'm imagining that maybe I'm Shell. I'm imagining that maybe I'm BP. I'm imagining maybe I'm a smaller firm. You know, I, I happen to not work in that sector specifically, but just how prevalent is this particular kind of equipment? Yeah, there's definitely a range um, depending on the company size, but companies can have thousands of these assets across the United States. Huh. Okay. So just in the U.S., So lots and lots, scaffolding, people set it up. And then what are folks doing? I imagine we have some kind of a checklist. These are experts who understand what does a broken component A, component B, component C look like? And what does a clean and working component A, component B, component C look like? And they've been trained enough. They have their manual, whatever the case may be. They climb, they go through a checklist, they come down, and then there's like an assessment. 
and we get to decide what do we want to go back up and fix. Is this is this roughly what it looks like, or would you add some some detail to that example? No, I think you're I think you're on the money there. They're typically looking for a bunch of known problems. I think there are these kind of edge cases where something comes up that they would have liked to have inspected at the time, but they just didn't really have it on the the top list while that infrastructure was shut down. So usually they're looking for something specific and there'll be a catalog of issues that they're trying to detect or sort of qualify the amount of damage and if there needs to be some response to that. Got it. Okay. So, and then if they come down and there there's some consensus on, hey, I'm, I'm using a very simple set of terms here, Nick, for the audience, but you know, we have a one through five, right? One meaning there's absolutely nothing we need to do. There's basically no need to look into it. A five being, by golly, this is about to you know be a horrendous mess. If we have a number of items that are maybe in the three or four range, you know, there may be a consensus decision that, okay, we need to go up and we need to take X action. Or, if, you know, if we only have a couple things in the three range, but they don't seem to be super pivotal, we might say, well, we're doing another inspection in 12 months or six months or whenever. Uh, and so we actually think that it makes the most financial and safety sense to actually just check in on it at that later time. Is that sort of the, the process post here? Definitely. Yeah. For each of the different assets, there'll be a different maintenance schedule. Some things will be looked at on a weekly basis, some things on a monthly basis, some things only once or twice a year. And definitely based on the severity will determine if that infrastructure needs to continue to be shut down and have to go into maintenance mode to fix some of those issues. Or otherwise, it's just tracking the severity of them for the next inspection. Okay, got it. And I imagine it's sort of hard because there's so many different kinds of equipment, but I'm trying to put my finger on the pulse here of what the the business value is of doing this. You know, when this equipment is cut off for this scaffolding, which might last, you know, I guess depending on the equipment, maybe it's a week, maybe it's two weeks, maybe in some cases it's five days. I have no idea, but um, you'd have a better a better sense. Um, you mentioned a flare something. What was the kind of equipment you used as like the first example? Yeah, flare stack. Flare stack. Okay. In, terms of, in terms of the value, I mean, some of these facilities are are generating millions of dollars an hour. So the cost of shutting them down is actually extraordinary. And any sort of efficiency that lets these facilities continue to operate without having to be shut down or being shut down very efficiently, that's a big ROI driver in this industry. Okay. A flare stack. So I've had to Google that in the background because you can tell uh, what inordinate percentage of my time I spend in finance and defense as opposed to uh, oil and gas necessarily. But flare stack <laughs> is a, a pretty Googleable term for those of you who are listening in. A nice big pipe into the sky with a fire at the top of it. You've all probably seen one either in the cartoons or the news or maybe in real life. So, okay. So we're shutting one of those down means stopping the processes sort of that lead up to it, which kind of means pushing pause on the money-making engine here. Absolutely. And these facilities only make money when they're operating. So as soon as you turn these things off, uh, dollars are getting lost. Yeah. So, okay. Inspection is, you know, solving inspection is a, is a big, big problem. Okay. Understood. Um, and and uh, energy has enough problems as it stands, Nick, at this time of this recording, right? So inspection should, should not be one of them. So now, you know, we're talking about evolving this process. You folks are in the drone business here. What does it look like to limit that financial hit and bring about maybe a more efficient process for uh, investigating this infrastructure? I think there are two kind of key parts to that. The first is drones, and the second is machine learning. On the drone side, the first thing is to make that inspection contactless, to not have a person on that infrastructure, which means that you don't need scaffolding around the the asset and also means you don't need to shut it down at all. So you can continue to perform these inspections on the same kind of 
maintenance cadence or even more frequently without having to shut it down at all. So that immediately is a massive kind of ROI gain. These facilities continue to operate, but the inspections can also take place without having to put people in harm's way. Got it. And maybe we could just talk about the drone part first. Nick, you know, when it comes to using drones, I think somebody tuned in might just say, okay, well, you know, we we find a set of routes up and down whatever this piece of equipment is that will hit on the same catalog set of points that we needed a human to hit on. And maybe it's going to take pictures along the way. Is that roughly what we're talking about? We're programming this thing or remote controlling this thing to essentially just snapshot XYZ QRS across all the different angles and positions that they need to in order for us to have the same set of pictures we need to make decisions. Absolutely. And and there's kind of more to it. I mean, that in essence is what the beginning of a drone deploy flight is. It makes it easy for anyone to acquire a bunch of imagery of an asset. So you're absolutely right that we do a bunch of flight planning, set a bunch of waypoints and fly the drone to collect a bunch of imagery and video of that asset. The second part of that is that imagery and video is used to create a 3D reconstruction of that asset. And that's what our customers can look at in the browser as a sort of digital twin of that asset. And then they can inspect and measure and annotate any issues as if that was the real asset. But they don't need to be near the assets. They don't need to ahead of time know specifically what they're looking for. They've got this accurate metric reconstruction that they can do the inspection on instead. Got it. Okay. So they can sort of not just look through, let's say, a a big fistful of pictures, but they can look at a three-dimensional model of sorts, almost as if they're flying around the thing themselves. Absolutely. And I think this is where that second part, the machine learning, kind of really takes over because you've got this, this digital twin of the asset, and that's the thing that you're now inspecting. And you're looking at really, really high resolution imagery. You're looking at any sort of aspect of that asset, even if it was really hard to access by a person. Some of these parts are very difficult to access, but you can still get good imagery of them. But now the machine learning algorithms behind the scenes are assisting that person with the inspection. They've got that same catalog of issues that you're looking to detect on the asset, and it can start to help. It can say, okay, instead of having to look at 500 images of this this flare stack, just look at these 10 where we think they're the most prevalent issues and start to sort of drive efficiency and take those tasks that are either expensive or tedious or time-consuming or even error-prone for manual inspection and just slowly dissolve them. Yeah, let's talk about that slow dissolving. So I think this would be the premise and promise and value prop. Uh, Frankly, I mean, Nick, I, I could see a business model here with just manually zipping a drone up and down, taking pictures with a human being actually having to steer the thing and take the pictures the whole way, and then looking through 17 different folders of pictures, each focused on a different component set, and then assessing and analyzing those with human beings. That by itself seems like it would cut down on the downtime sufficiently to be a business. But what you're talking about, of course, is a machine being able to maybe highlight, maybe score, maybe bring attention to some of that assessment work that a human would have to do picture by picture so that we could maybe have kind of a green and a red extreme and and kind of have a, a scoring system just from the visual data itself. I take it that's what you're saying, but could you apply this to maybe a component? You know, we can stay with the, uh, with the flare stack, if you will, this new nice term you've taught me today. So, you know, maybe we can stick with that. What, what's an example of this dissolving you speak of? Yeah. So if we think of the, the flare stack inspection, maybe your drone's collected a thousand images of that asset. And now it would normally be somebody's task to go through each of those looking for 
let's say you're looking for corrosion on the metal. Um, if you had a machine learning algorithm in the background looking for that same issue, it could immediately kind of flag the issues where it's detected that there's a very high chance that there's corrosion. And you might still have a person confirming those results. In fact, I think that's typically very important for yes, something yes, that's yes. as critical as this infrastructure. I don't think it's a good idea to assume that machine learning is just going to kind of waltz in and solve everyone's problems in one file swoop. I think we've got to look at machine learning as this extra source of information that drives efficiency. And in this case, it could be prioritizing which images need to be looked at, or it could be verifying human results and ultimately reducing the time to data. So the time from that asset being inspected till the results actually being delivered where actions need to take place. And if it's one person looking through a thousand images versus a machine learning algorithm going through those in two minutes, there's another big ROI driver there. Time to data, just reducing that. Big time. And the analogy I would use for the listeners, and Nick, if you disagree or if you want to double down on something here, let me know. Again, it's really important for these episodes, the use case episodes, is making our business audience have this new superpower where they can kind of see an example of a problem and understand where and how AI could fit into it. Not because AI is should be solving all problems, but to know which ones it could be a snug fit for. And I think a good analogy here would be in radiology, for example. You know, we, we scan a bunch of chest x-rays and we have a system that is not going to prescribe somebody a cancer medication. It's not going to prescribe somebody, a, you know, an exercise regimen, but it might highlight particular things that could be tumors or particular things that could be signs. And so when someone is sitting there, you know, a radiologist is sitting in front of their displays for eight hours at a clip, they have maybe some highlighted things that maybe will already draw their attention to help them maybe be more efficient at their job or maybe catch things that have come up in previous thousands and thousands of instances. It feels to me as though it's it's a near identical integration to the workflow where we're sort of augmenting the smarts, hopefully speeding up the process and, and augmenting the smarts of the human who would otherwise have to do very rote visual stuff. Absolutely right. I think that's a I think that's a great analogy. You're you're reducing the error rate, you're increasing the efficiency, and you're prioritizing or streamlining the work. So I don't think that these sort of use cases are the things that in the near term are going to be entirely handed over to machines. Definitely not. But I think ML behind the scenes can really, really drive efficiency by 90 plus percent. Big time. And, and the way I would see this now, you know more about the future of your business than I. We've got a couple minutes so we can talk about where this eventually takes us moving forward. You know, when I think about the business you're in, the exciting thing for me now, uh, if I was a, a venture investor in you guys, would be if you worked with oodles and oodles of companies that just had these flare stacks and you had a system that more or less you could just run on a new random set of, let's say, 12 or 18 flare stacks with, with new client X and sort of off the bat already be able to be programmatically you know, scoring, highlighting etc, cetera, etc, cetera, because you've seen so many flare stacks and because maybe people have manually labeled so many of those images within your system that it's actually fed it to become smarter. Now, I do not presume that the first couple times you took a drone up and down a piece of equipment, it quote unquote got smarter. I, I, I think probably you have to pick your poison in terms of where you want to double down and really train a system. But talk a little bit about what that future would look like. And, and if you guys are going to be kind of knuckling down to, you know, core infrastructure types so that maybe you can get more and more refined down particular channels, directions, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of different tasks that we can try and tackle with machine learning. And when it comes to this, the volume of data and the number of different examples of each of these problems or, 
or the absence of these problems, that's obviously what's driving up the accuracy of the machine learning algorithms. So anyone who's kind of deploying this machine learning successfully, they need to kind of close that loop of setting up a machine learning solution, letting it operate alongside a human being, and then adjusting and correcting and kind of taking the learnings and the adjustments of the human operator and incorporating them into the machine learning algorithm. So these things get better and better and better. And as they incrementally get better, that just drives up the efficiency more and more. And I mean, there's no shortage of these applications. I think for us at Drone Deploy, we've identified that we can't go out there and solve every machine learning use case for every different customer. But what we can do is we can maintain that data in a way that helps our customers innovate. And I think what's extremely exciting in this kind of day and age with machine learning is you're seeing some of these industries like oil and gas, construction, agriculture that have that have typically been some of the least digitized industries in the world and the industries that are the least willing to dive onto new technology now genuinely innovating and having in-house machine learning tools building these applications to drive up their own efficiency. And I think Drone Deploy's role here is to help those customers and let them innovate by making it easy to bring those machine learning algorithms to the drone platform and have them incorporated in their workflow. So they can focus on that specific niche business case like looking for corrosion on a gas flare stack instead of that whole end-to-end of where's this model going to run, who's going to maintain it, who's going to retrain it, and just focusing at the tip of the spear. Yeah, and we're going to have another episode uh, around the making the business case stuff and the integration considerations. But just to clarify where you're going, number one, I think that that's a, a neat and compelling vision. I can see where you're headed there. Is the aim in part for you folks to probably, you know, s- startups for for the most part, I mean, up until a certain point, will sort of, you know, grab business if somebody raises their hand so long as they have the competency to deliver. Is the aim to sort of knuckle down more and more. So you're saying an individual client having enough data about a certain kind of infrastructure item so that they can keep iterating and improving. Would it not also make sense for you folks to take the data from so many different instances that when somebody else plugs it in for inspecting, let's say, cell towers for telecom or flare stacks for oil and gas, that you already have those models trained? Or is the data proprietary per customer and you really do have to kind of not extrapolate it into a broader product offering for you to take to the market? Yeah, we definitely need to kind of respect our customers' data in that sense. Like if our customers are collecting data for their sites, then it remains their data. Got it. Um, okay. We have the ability to use that to build a better product. And I think that's a key consideration of like, if you're using data from one customer to train a model that's giving an advantage to one of their competitors, then that's something you've got to be, yeah. be careful of. So where possible, we keep those things separate. But I think what's surprising is how little data and examples you actually need to get something that incrementally drives value. Even if you're training on, say, 100 images and you're able to drop the number of images that need to be inspected by a human by 50%, that's still a huge saving. You don't necessarily need a ton of data to drive value in these industries. Big time. Okay, cool. So interesting clarification on the business model. I know there's some folks that are, you know, extrapolating from, you know, project to project. Clearly for you, again, there's data considerations there. I always like to just get a sense of, hey, where's this company actually going? And I appreciate you looking under the hood a little bit. So we've got a great picture of the before and after here, Nick. I know that's all we have for time on this episode, but thanks so much for joining us here on the AI and Business Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan.
So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you're not already following us on social, be sure to do so. Uh, Emerge is pretty easy to find on Twitter, E-M-E-R-J, or you can find Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on Facebook and on LinkedIn. We post not only our latest articles and our latest podcasts from both of our podcasts, the AI and Financial Services Podcast, which you may want to check out in addition to the AI and Business Show, but also any of the latest white papers or free resources that we publish uh, across essentially any part of Emerge.com. So stay up to snuff with trends, stay up to snuff with more use cases, and follow us on social. Without further ado, I'm going to wrap up this episode. We'll catch you for Thursday for our Making the Business Case episode, where we're going to be talking about building successful AI products. How do we integrate AI into a product in a way that actually makes it a more powerful product that wins in the market? Well, we're going to be talking to the founder of a unicorn company in two days to answer that question. So stay tuned. I'll catch you in two days. Thank you.